This podcast is brought to you by the Transitional Justice Institute at Ulster University. Learn more about our work, including our taught postgraduate programmes in gender, conflict, transitional justice and human rights at www.transitionaljustice.ulster.ac.uk. Uh, first of all, thank you for all being here. Uh, I'm really excited. Uh, and thank you, Nissan, for the wonderful introduction. Um, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation. So, um, and my share screen is all right, right? You can see it. All right, good. Um, so uh, I would like to structure today's talk around uh, partly my, my own research, but in great part actually on uh, research by others. Uh, lately, I've been writing um, a review article on Truth Commission impact, and so uh, the the audience for that actually was sort of more of a law and society crowd, and so I'm really trying to combine uh, some of my findings with um, the generic findings uh, from from the rest of the literature uh, on um, truth and reconciliation commissions. So first of all, my motivation uh, here is really to ask the question: uh, What does it mean to come to terms with the past uh, with a truth commission? Uh, I recognize that over the years, um, perhaps the reason why I picked up truth commissions as my a field of study was uh, actually a broader sort of empirical slash normative engagement with this question. What does it mean to come to terms with the past? And I'm uh, also hoping to end with this question today. Um, and truth commissions are uh, an institutional mechanism of coming to terms with the past that um, has become a lot more prominent in the last 30 to 40 years. And so the broader question of coming to terms with the past is always there, but I think the truth commissions have uh, sort of been the prominent actors, prominent institutions of doing so in the last 30 to 40 years. And so here is a map of all the truth commissions that I could count. Uh, and of course, these are all um, essentially contested definitions. Uh, so, you know, um, no claim to have an objective map or of anything here, but so truth commissions in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s uh, color-coded, as well as non-transitional truth commissions, so truth commissions that are established in the absence of, uh, um, of um, an arguable visible transition, as well as some of the ongoing uh, truth commissions around the world. Uh, so that leads me to actually first define truth commissions and talk a little bit about definitional issues. Uh, so what I'm going to do next is I'm going to perhaps um, sort of conceptualize truth commissions before uh, delving into the literature on uh, empirical uh, as well as sort of more normative literature on truth commissions and truth commission findings about truth commissions. Um, in the end, if there's sort of one takeaway from the talk, it is that. Um, scholars are perhaps hopelessly uh, divided over whether or not truth commissions produce impact and what kind of impact they produce. Uh, but I also see that as a sort of a fruitful, productive uh, sort of disagreement uh, for the reasons that I'm going to uh, explain later. So a truth commission is um, a temporary body established with an official mandate to investigate human rights violations, identify the patterns and causes of violence, and publish a final report through a politically autonomous procedure. So I want to stay here for a bit. Um, why is it important to define a truth commission? Um, 
I mean, in some sense, you could say that it's not. Uh, at the end of the day, there are uh, other institutions, for example, um, institutes of historical memory that do very similar uh, things, that, that play similar functions, that um, preserve historical memory around past human rights violations. Uh, I think what makes truth commissions a little bit uh, sort of more unique is the fact that they are established for a temp for a, uh, for ad hoc uh, reasons and, and for a period of time, and so they disband. Uh, this is important to take note of because truth commissions do not produce ongoing impact uh, through their existence. Uh, truth commissions simply disband, um, so they're temporary. The other thing is, yes, I mean they're obviously about human rights violations. Uh, since the term truth commission has become very uh, sort of famous, popular, now sometimes people use it for other things. For example, uh, sort of doping or cheating scandals in sports, etc. Uh, so you know, let's establish uh, a truth commission to see uh, you know, what kind of cheating is going on in sports. Uh, I mean, that's fine too. It's just that uh, it's, it's, it's not covered by the definition that I'm providing here. Um, another... Um, perhaps uh, definitional characteristic is that uh, truth commissions identify patterns and causes of, of violence. And so one, yes, they list a number of human rights violations, but also they try to find patterns, some sort of commonalities between them. Uh, this is going to be important because uh, that way truth commissions actually write history to some extent. Their historiographical function, of course, is also contested, but uh, at the end of the day, uh, truth commissions do not just provide lists of uh, violations. And finally, they're supposed to publish a final report. Now, not every truth commission has been able to do so. Uh, a number of truth commissions, and I'm thinking of the one in Bolivia in 18, uh, 1982, for example, um, has not been allowed to sort of publish its final report. Um, now, is it still a truth commission? Uh, I mean, yes, it has done some work to, to perhaps qualify as one. The problem is uh, the mechanisms of impact that we're talking about through uh, political intervention or through civil society mobilization uh, probably wouldn't be possible in the absence of a final report. And so, you know, very few of you probably have heard of the 1982 uh, Bolivia uh, report. Um, and um, well, that's in great part because they didn't publish a final report and so it didn't really shape the, um, the public discourse. And finally, political autonomy. Again, this is something that should be assessed rather than assumed, but truth commissions are, are supposed to operate at an arm's length from, uh, from state institutions. And so there's a number of uh, investigatory bodies that are established uh, in, in parliaments that are established by presidents sort of uh, appointing their own bureaucrats, etc. Are they truth commissions? Uh, my inclination is to say no, because uh, again, some degree of political autonomy is necessary. Uh, but again, this is also a sliding scale argument and not, not all truth commissions are fully autonomous to begin with. And so um, some degree of autonomy, I think is necessary sort of as a definitional characteristic, but uh, again, it's open to um, debate. I'm going to move on to uh, talking about impact. So what does it mean for a truth commission to produce impact, uh, to produce uh, change? Uh, and I define it as the effect of a truth commission on government policy, judicial processes, and social norms, uh, operating independently of the simultaneous effects of post-conflict institution building, as well as other transitional justice and conflict resolution measures. 
So truth commissions are expected to do a lot of things, right? I mean, even when you just read their names, it's like Truth Commission, Truth and Reconciliation Commission, Commission for Coexistence, Peace, Justice, uh, Reparations. And so pretty much all the cool things in life sort of go under the title uh, Truth Commission. And so uh, that, of course, brings some risks with it. Do Truth Commissions actually deliver? And then um, there is a methodological debate to be had there, which I hope is not an intramural debate, which is that uh, truth commissions are typically, not always, but typically established when uh, things are sort of getting better in a country, when uh, democratization has recently happened or when a peace process is underway or when a peace process has already concluded. And so what that means is obviously things are going to look better anyway. And so do truth commissions actually help? Uh, do they have some sort of independent impact or are they sort of riding the wave of uh, things getting better? So that is sort of essentially the empirical question. Now here's one of my favorite cartoons coming from uh, the South African transition. Uh, and so you can see um, Archbishop Tutu holding the map to reconciliation uh, in his hands. But again, it's um, something to be assessed rather than assumed. Do truth commissions actually deliver? So um, a number of scholars have obviously studied whether or not truth commissions produce impact. And here I'm giving an example of uh, truth commission impact on future human rights conduct. So whether or not a truth commission today helps a country respect human rights uh, in the future. And you can see that there are those who are sort of very positive uh, when it comes to answering the question uh, who believe that if anything, truth commissions produce weekly negative impact. Uh, some who argue for conditional impact. So if truth commissions are uh, complemented by other mechanisms, they could produce some impact. And then there are those who call to, well, and you know, I'm uh, rephrasing the title of Mendeloff's article here to curb our enthusiasm. And so, uh, and this is just in one sort of line of research on truth commissions. So how is it possible that um, such great scholars doing such wonderful work end up uh, coming up with sort of these very different answers to the, uh, to the question of uh, impact? Um, I am going to answer in greater detail in a bit, but uh, it's perhaps worth saying that um, it's partly about methodological and epistemological choices. So how research is designed and conducted. Um, but in great part, well, it could also be about which truth commission they look at, of course, but um, that's on the side. And of course, it could also be very much about their um, normative philosophical underpinnings. So what kinds of fundamental human values are being put forward as the uh, addressee of truth commission impact? So who's supposed to benefit from a truth commissions? Or in other words, what is involved in the politics of a truth commission? Uh, this has yielded uh, different perspectives on what truth commissions are supposed to do. So on the one hand, um, perhaps if one takes a more sort of optimistic path, uh, one could say that truth commissions are really established in good faith to achieve uh, good things. One, to help uh, the victims uh, get to the truth of, of what happened in the past. Uh, 
today is an international day uh, for the right to truth, uh, commemorating the uh, assassination of um, a Jesuit priest uh, in El Salvador uh, on this day in uh, 1980, uh, Romero. Uh, it's also the uh, 45th anniversary of the Argentine coup. And so a big part of the reason why the uh, Truth Commission was established first in Argentina in 1983 and then all around the world uh, is because victims need to know what happened to, well, uh, to, 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 to their loved ones, uh, especially in cases of forced disappearances. Uh, and also they want society to know about what happened to victim survivors as well as um, uh, victims who are not uh, with us anymore. And so in that way, at a minimal level, truth commissions are uh, uh, expected to achieve that. Uh, they could also recommend reparations. They could perhaps shame uh, outgoing regimes that have committed human rights violations. And so in that way, they could be expected to serve some or all victims. Uh, or broadly speaking, they might be expected to serve all of society. Again, uh, in even just uh, listing the names of truth commissions, we see there is an expectation of reconciliation and peace and coexistence and friendship. And that means uh, that all of society could be expected to benefit from the existence of a truth commission. Uh, now that's one way of thinking about truth commissions. Another uh, sort of more rational strategic line of thinking that I also observe in the literature is to portray truth commissions as, um, some sort of a second best justice that uh, governments establish in order to uh, maybe clear their names or to shame their uh, competitors uh, or simply to basically deliver the minimum degree of transitional justice uh, imaginable to the victims to distract them from the broader goals of uh, justice. And so that more skeptical take uh, sort of emphasizes the extent to which a sponsoring government is expected to benefit from a truth commission, as well as, well, uh, perhaps unexpectedly, some perpetrators who could get away. Um, well, maybe sort of one warning, uh, the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission has obviously made the headlines. And so there's a tendency to think of truth commissions as the South African Commission which uh, famously um, granted amnesty to uh, those perpetrators who gave an open and honest confession about politically motivated crimes. Um, truth commissions generally do not follow the South African example, uh, except for the Liberian one. None of them has even uh, had the authority to recommend amnesties and correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm missing any other place, let alone grant amnesties. And so this perpetrator sort of um, driven or, or, or this sort of truth commission that benefits perpetrators in some ways um, isn't really that, that popular. Um, but after all, I think the South African example has sort of shaped minds. And so uh, there is a certain tendency to think of truth commissions as benefiting perpetrators in some material way. And so, you know, these are sort of the different views that one sees in the, um, in the literature. And my personal take is that, yeah, I mean, uh, sponsoring governments definitely uh, seek to benefit from the creation of a truth commission. There is definitely some instrumentalization there, but I think uh, there are unforeseen, unintended consequences of truth commissions. And so uh, regardless of whether a government is completely self-serving or not, the impact of a truth commission cannot be reduced to its uh, sort of more instrumental core. 
Um, then, you know, the next question, of course, is who drives truth commission impact? You know, what are the different uh, views on this? Uh, one obvious answer, as with just about any policy intervention, is that when the elected branches or the executive and legislative branches, let's say, uh, take up the uh, recommendations of a truth commission seriously and implement them into policy, then um, you have direct political impact. Uh, and that's how impact happens. Now, as uh, obvious as that is, uh, a lot of truth commissions actually produce impact not through the uh, direct intervention of um, uh, politicians, but, but rather through um, uh, human rights organizations and victims groups that I'm going to uh, come to uh, in a minute. Now, another mechanism for truth commission impact would be if uh, courts basically took up the facts established by a truth commission and used them in, uh, in their proceedings. So domestic, regional, and international courts might play uh, just such a role. Uh, now, human rights organizations, how do they produce impact? Uh, their impact is basically indirect. It's through uh, pressuring governments to implement truth commission recommendations. And so if it weren't for human rights organizations and, um, and victims groups, probably we would not have had truth commissions, much less uh, truth commission impact. Um, but um, the specific way in which they do that is again through uh, ongoing uh, relentless pressure on, uh, on governments, uh, perhaps to do better. And finally, the international community has been put forward as a mechanism uh, of impact. So, you know, the international community covering uh, sometimes foreign governments that have a self-stated interest in, in human rights, but also international NGOs. Uh, they provide some of the funding for uh, truth commissions around the world. Uh, sometimes they also provide political support. And so, you know, the big question is, well, do they actually... Uh, sort of help uh, produce impact. Now, my findings, um, and again, I know this is a sort of a list that is, um, that probably reduces a lot of the complexity and variation in truth commissions, but just a set of findings from uh, truth commissions around the world. Yes, uh, truth commissions do produce some direct political impact, especially when it comes to a reparations program. I've observed that more than half of countries that established the Truth Commission during their transition uh, uh, end up instituting a reparations program following Truth Commission recommendations within the first three to five years of uh, the publication of a final report of a Truth Commission. And so there is a little bit of that. Uh, also here and there governments, uh, I don't know, pass legislation to um, respect the recommendations of a Truth Commission. Yet, uh, it is not uh, sort of overwhelmingly uh, positive impact and so truth commission uh, recommendations are not always uh, implemented into policy. There are some countries that do more and there are countries that do less. And I'll be happy to address that in the Q&A. So another mechanism of impact is again, civil society mobilization, especially domestic civil society plays a crucial role in uh, pushing governments to implement uh, truth Commission recommendations in the long run. So even if uh, within the first three to five years, the government is not doing anything, uh, civil society mobilization could perhaps you know, change the picture. One uh, impact mechanism that I didn't mention so far uh, is 
through truth commissions, uh, efforts to uh, perhaps name and shame perpetrators. And so uh, in, well, just about anywhere, truth commissions actually uh, identify institutional perpetrators of violence, uh, whether that be a government or a non-state armed actor. But when it comes to uh, naming and shaming individuals, uh, truth commissions have been very, very careful not to, one, uh, sort of step a political, uh, step over a political line, and two, uh, not to violate what could be considered uh, perhaps um, a due process uh, violation, uh, so due process rights. A few countries have nonetheless used vetting, uh, non-criminal sanctioning, uh, after a truth commission uh, recommendations, uh, El Salvador is, is uh, perhaps you know the best example. In 1992, the truth commission basically recommended uh, vetting uh, some of the members of the uh, the military regime, and then the government uh, implemented into that policy uh, with its own problems. Uh, but nonetheless, that's that's sort of one setting where truth commissions produce this kind of impact. It doesn't happen in many other places. Now, an interesting one, uh, truth commissions are typically called truth and reconciliation commissions. Um, if by reconciliation we understand the absence of contention, the absence of differences over the meaning of the past, that is not observed in the short run. I personally think that's not a problem at all, that yes, post-truth commission processes are supposed to be contentious, that there will be those who will try to deny and relativize uh, past human rights violations, and, and I think the fact that truth commissions confront them is simply a political good rather than bad. But uh, understanding that for some reconciliation is this moment of sort of peace and, and absence of contention, absence of uh, sort of wild differences over the meaning of the past, uh, you know, uh, it could be disappointing to figure out that, uh, yeah, generally truth commissions do not produce uh, sort of this absence of contention in the in the in the immediate short run. Do truth commissions help courts? Uh, do they produce uh, sort of positive judicial impact? Typically, court findings, sorry, uh, truth commission findings have been used as evidence uh, in courts, uh, but not much more. Um, so, uh, oops, sorry, in. Um, in more than a few cases, truth commission findings have been incorporated as providing sort of the essential context to understand human rights violation in courts and, and, and uh, et cetera. But beyond that, uh, prosecutors want to uh, sort of use their own methods, uh, take their own testimonies when conducting criminal uh, investigation. And so truth commission's findings do not make it directly as evidence into uh, courtrooms uh, in general. With that said, um, truth commissions in, in Chile and Peru shared their, uh, or offered to share their findings to, uh, with, the, with the prosecutor's office. Uh, some truth commissions, especially the one in Sierra Leone was, was expected to work in tandem with a, uh, sort of with a hybrid court. And so uh, sort of this expected collaboration is there in more than a few countries, but again, uh, it's fairly modest when it comes to impact. Now, talking about negative judicial impact, so this idea that truth commissions could be a distraction from justice, that they could actually end up uh, reproducing a culture of impunity. Um, 
I mean, yes, the, uh, the South African TRC basically provided amnesties to perpetrators to the consternation of uh, some uh, when it comes to criminal justice. But again, this is really more of a, uh, an unusual case rather than the trend. And I don't find any evidence elsewhere that uh, impunity is caused by truth commissions. And so I'd be careful sort of, uh, to give too much um, sort of credence to this notion of uh, negative judicial impact. I don't think, uh, in light of evidence, I don't think it happens. Um, there's very, very limited evidence. Uh, and again, a lot of it comes from South Africa where, uh, by the way, where, uh, only 12% of the perpetrators' uh, confessions were accepted, and so even there, you know, we, you know, the causes for impunity could be sought elsewhere and not in the Truth Commission itself. So, uh, those were my findings. But again, uh, I should uh, still admit that there is still a lot of difference in terms of the assessments of Truth Commission impact in the scholarship. So, what causes that? And one has to do with defining things. Uh, I gave you my definition, but um, there is definitely wild uh, divergence in terms of definitions of truth commissions. And the number of truth commissions that people count ranges anywhere between, I don't know, 40 to 100. Uh, again, depending on what aspects of the definition one sort of decides to include or exclude, uh, there is a large number of truth finding bodies in the world today. Some of them conduct ongoing investigations. Some of them con conduct investigation about the past. Some of them are temporary. Some of them are not. Some of them have managed to produce uh, some sort of um, report. Some of them haven't been able to do so. Some of them are established in a parliament. Many of them are not. And so depending on whether one includes or excludes those, uh, you know, you could uh, have very different numbers of truth commissions. And of course, uh, as a result, di different um, sort of um, outcomes when it comes to impact. Uh, the same goes for defining impact, of course. Now, methodological choices uh, are interesting. In much of human rights scholarship, uh, with or without truth commissions, one does find a bit of a qualitative quantitative divide, or maybe put it in other words, uh, a difference between large N and small N studies. So large N studies typically used by collecting a lot of data from a lot of contexts and um, and quantifying the data, sort of codifying the data in numbers, and then uh, using some sort of descriptive or regression uh, statistics analysis uh, on the data. And small n studies meaning perhaps, well, first and foremost, of course, ethnographies, but it could also be used for uh, any, any case study or small number of case studies involving interviews, uh, archival research, uh, well, ethnographies for sure, uh, and so, and then perhaps survey research is somewhere in between, uh, obviously, usually uh, closer to the large N uh, side of things. Um, now, these methodological choices definitely drive outcomes. Again, in, in much of human rights research, it is found that um, large N findings are somehow more optimistic than small N ones. I can definitely attest to that in uh, truth commission literature. Um, those who conduct small N studies typically report dissatisfaction coming from victims and victim survivors and victims relatives. Uh, they uh, look at the sort of the more um, micro level capillary dynamics of uh, how truth commissions uh, operate and they find that 
Uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of them really fail to live up to their uh, promises uh, or expectations. Uh, whereas in large end studies, uh, without generalizing too much, one gets the sense that, well, at the end of the day, some things work. Uh, that you know, truth commissions are good for um, perhaps human rights conduct in the future, if not that, democratization or democratic deepening in the future, or some macro level variable. Uh, now, of course, there are methodological biases and problems. Uh, without getting into too much detail, with small end studies, uh, you can't really generalize if that is the goal, um, not that it should be. With large end study, uh, there's, there are some elephants in the room. Uh, one has to do with the quality of data, uh, but also uh, issues of multicollinearity. So that is to say when the phenomena that you're trying to explain end up also interacting with one another uh, when, um, well, sometimes what's called reverse causation. So when the outcome you're trying to explain is actually the cause of the things that you are uh, um, using as explanatory factors. So to give an example, uh, yes, I mean, truth commissions are expected to help with better human rights conduct or with improved human rights conduct in a country, but one could also argue that perhaps uh, a truth commission only becomes possible because uh, the human rights situation in a country is already better. So large end studies obviously have to account for these kinds of uh, potential methodological biases and problems and so on and so forth. So, you know, these are uh, other reasons why uh, people disagree in the literature uh, about whether truth commissions produce impact or not. Now, finally, there is another issue and that has to do with normative visions. Um, at the end of the day, uh, intellectuals, scholars, journalists who write on truth commissions come from a very different perspectives on what it is that truth commissions are expected to um, achieve. Now, one, and the one that is, I think, more straightforward is uh, some notion of liberal democratic citizenship. So after all, truth commissions want to make sure that past bodily integrity rights violations are uh, publicized uh, and that they are not repeated in the future and that society basically uh, avoids or, or government uh, or in some cases non-state armed actors avoid uh, committing these kinds of abuses uh, or if those abuses have already been committed, uh, they um, are, uh, these actors are um, basically committed to uh, procuring justice uh, in the future. And so standard sort of rule of law and fundamental bodily integrity rights narrative uh, that I put down here as liberal democratic uh, citizenship. And of course, the inclusion of victims uh, in, uh, in, the, in the new society is, is part of this vision. Rule of law reform, judicial reform could be part of this vision. And so that's one way to think about truth commission impact. And <clears throat> obviously just about everybody who's written about truth commissions has uh, also considered this to be sort of fundamental to what a truth commission can achieve. Um, and has it achieved, uh, has, have truth commissions achieved liberal democratic citizenship? Uh, the jury is out. I think that is the one area in which sort of the most uh, uh, evidence has been uh, collected in favor and occasionally against uh, whether or not truth commissions sort of, uh, contribute to this kind of goal. Uh, again, I think there are elements of uh, rule of law reform uh, in just about any society they're established. Uh, whether or not this is a successful project, of course, is uh, sort of uh, 
written about in the literature. Now, there's another way to think about truth commissions, and that's from the perspective of social justice, that truth commissions could be an element of socioeconomic, racial, or gender justice. Now, uh, I would like to dwell on this for a minute, because on the one hand, again, truth commissions are investigatory bodies, and so most of what they do is forensic, so you know, uh, not a whole lot to be said about uh, social justice. On the other hand, one of the messages of <clears throat> truth commissions and transitional justice in general is never again, right? Non-repetition of past violence and violations. And so why did past violence and violations happen? There are underlying causes and identifying those underlying causes is part of truth commissions uh, mandate for never again. And so for that reason, truth commissions have been interested in questions of social justice, uh, even as they were primarily conducting forensic investigation. Uh, a society that is more equal, that distributes uh, income or wealth more equally or in more egalitarian ways could be a less violent place. Or a society that overcomes uh, decades, if not centuries of, of racism, institutionalized racism, uh, will be one that will avoid uh, um, future political violence and violations. A society that is attuned to uh, gender-based inequalities as well as gender-based violence, as well as the gender-based construction of violent uh, ideas, ideologies, and identities would be uh, a less violent place. So these ideas uh, motivate truth commissions, at least some truth commissions uh, around the world. And this has led to quite a divide in the literature about whether truth commissions, one, should do this, and two, can do this. Uh, some early critical voices, and I'm thinking Greg Grandin, for example, a historian, basically wrote that uh, truth commissions in countries like Argentina and Chile uh, shied away from political controversy. They did not say anything about why the military coups happened in the first place, which was against an ascendant left. And so as a result, they basically set the Truth Commission set the tone for this depoliticizing of political violence. Uh, and, and, and they were in some ways perhaps complicit with the neoliberal zeitgeist of the 1990s, uh, so on and so forth, which has led uh, to a lot of criticism of Truth Commissions as ignoring uh, social justice. Um, others have correctly pointed out, uh, pointed out that uh, in, settings as varied as Peru, Guatemala, uh, Ghana, South Africa, uh, truth commissions actually have taken up uh, the issue of socioeconomic or racial injustice that they have written about uh, how the um, class and racial divides in that society have fueled past violence and violations. And so they haven't really shied away from political controversy at all. And that they have typically had this sort of more transformative, if not revolutionary sort of conception of, uh, of justice. And uh, so in that way, uh, you know, truth commissions are not the sort of the Trojan horse of neoliberalism, as, as one might say. Um, at the end of the day, again, um, one could perhaps, you know, depending on which truth commission one focuses on, I could make either um, either point. Uh, but uh, it's worth saying that truth commissions have very limited capacity to actually bring about transformative change. I think where I personally see truth commissions contributing is 
preserving historical memory in ways that are truthful and in ways that uh, do justice to, um, to past victims and in ways that try to uh, narrativize the underlying causes of past violence. I think that's where you know, they're going to be their stronger, strongest. Uh, not sure if uh, a lot more uh, could be expected. And when it comes to gender justice, similarly, truth commissions have had a very slow evolution. In the 1990s, there is hardly any mention of gender-based violence uh, in, in, in truth commissions. Now, the Peruvian Truth Commission in 2001 uh, actually devotes sort of more, uh, not only more time, but actually uh, a volume of, uh, of, of the final report to, uh, to one, gender-based violence and primarily sexual violence, as well as to issues of gender-based inequality. Uh, and so since then, there is a little bit more sort of emphasis. I should also say that most, uh, sort of, uh, most of the gender-related narratives and truth commissions have sort of taken a more binary notion of justice so far. And so the inclusion of LGBTQI identities into truth commissions so far has been sort of an aspiration in the literature, but not, not a feature of existing truth commissions. So perhaps in the future, that's going to be sort of one of the tasks ahead. And finally, uh, a third normative vision is this notion of local justice, that truth commissions should do more to uh, address, um, especially in societies, of course, that were um, affected by colonialism, uh, to address um, needs of justice from a local perspective. And so um, in... Um, especially for ethnographers who worked in, uh, say, if I'm, I'm thinking of Aaron Bays, Baines in northern Uganda, talking about the drinking of the bitter root, the Palava hut uh, procedure in, in Liberia, the Gachacha courts in Rwanda. So these are examples of justice that could be considered in sort of in line with local norms um, and, 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 and values. And so the idea is that instead of sort of embarking on a project um, like truth commissions or like international trials uh, that is sort of supported by the international community and that sometimes reflects the expectations of the international community, truth commissions actually should do more to sort of ground themselves in local conceptions of justice. Now truth commissions are a little bit odd in that way because Part of the reason why truth commissions were established in the first place, I think, was uh, was the dissatisfaction with the uh, willingness and ability of international or domestic courts to, to bring justice. And so in that way, uh, truth commissions were not really these sort of imperial or colonial or, or neo-colonial impositions by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, with that said, uh, they have also received some praise and some criticism for one, trying to decolonize um, relationships in, in, in transitional justice uh, and, and some scholars, especially of Canada, actually do say that. Yet they have also received criticism for uh, failing to sort of um, be more sensitive to local uh, conceptions of justice. Uh, again, uh, you know, that, that's another normative vision. Personally, I think, uh, you know, a fruitful way to think about uh, sort of the locality of justice is from the perspective of power. So instead of sort of working with this binary of global versus local or international versus local, I think it's worth seeing what each conception of justice uh, ends up doing in terms of empowering 
uh, those who are disadvantaged and marginalized or uh, reverse empowering those who are already in positions of power. Um, so yeah, now I would like to slowly conclude. Uh, let me see, am I? Okay, I have a couple of minutes, I think. Um, I started, uh, well, I started off my uh, research on truth commissions, but also this talk with the question, what does coming to terms with the past mean? Uh, and so this is a question that comes from an article that was written by Theodore Adorno uh, about a decade, 15 years after, uh, after the end of World War II uh, to debate coming to terms with the past in West Germany at the time in 1959. And so against the sort of the more optimistic uh, outlook he basically said that a West German society is not doing nearly enough to come to terms with the past. And uh, his justification wasn't so much sort of, you know, listing uh, empirical details, although those also were there. <laughs> but uh, I think his was uh, more of a question of orientation. Um, he basically said that coming to terms with the past is not something that you can be done with that you can just you know, one day sit down, do and, and be done with as a society. Uh, he basically has this um, play uh, over words. Uh, he uses Vergangenheitsbewältigung. So in, in German, that's uh, mastering over the past. And he pits that against his conception of uh, coming to terms with the past, which is auf Arbeit, uh, working through the past. Uh, which he borrows, I think, from uh, Freudian psychoanalysis. And what he says is that a society cannot come to terms with its past, sort of establish some mechanisms, and then at the end of the day, say that they're done with coming to terms with the past, that they're over their past. It's, it's perhaps, you know, in analogy to therapy, it's an, an ongoing process that doesn't necessarily have a definite endpoint. And so uh, in thinking about transitional justice, I really value uh, Adorno's perspective because, again, it does not prescribe some sort of achievable goal, some sort of sort of empirical goalpost. Rather, this is an ongoing process that will uh, keep on evolving as society changes in the present, as society evolves in the present uh, as well. Uh, now, truth commissions are, I think, very awkwardly situated in between these sort of two different notions of coming to terms with the past. I mean, on the one hand, Truth Commission scholarship and, 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 and Truth Commission practice uh, are very empirical. I mean, at the end of the day, yeah, so, um, okay, here is how much money we invest, how much time we invest, and these are the deliverables. This is what we want to get out of a Truth Commission. And so that is part of the uh, conversation for sure. On the other hand, though, there is something about Truth Commissions that will always be unfinished, that it will always be um, up for re-evaluations, re-appraisals. And that's because truth commissions are, well, as instruments of coming to terms with the past are inherently uh, sort of contentious and their findings and their achievements will always be um, sort of evaluated and re-evaluated in, in light of uh, our present as well as how we see the past in light of our present. And so I think that is something to always keep in mind when we think about truth commissions. They are really awkwardly situated between this notion of coming to terms with the past as an unending 
uh, ongoing process versus uh, coming to terms with the past as a very careful um, sort of one-time intervention at some point in time to achieve some deliverable results. And one final thing that I want to touch upon, and I really want to hear other people's views on this, is that truth commissions typically reflected the uh, zeitgeist of the 1990s and 2000s, you know, when uh, at least in theory, uh, most governments were democratic in theory, or, or, or they, 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 they talked the talk of liberal democracy, that they wanted to um, contribute to human rights, etc. And of course, especially Western governments sort of, you know, uh, being expert at talking this kind of talk. Fast forward to 2015, 2016, uh, you see a very different picture. Uh, obviously here in the United States, uh, government was not terribly excited about human rights in general, um, uh, even, even the talk of human rights. Uh, in the early days of the uh, Trump transition, I remember uh, one of his um, advisors say that Japanese-American internment could be used as a positive example of, uh, of, of dealing with, uh, with immigrants today. Um, now, in a country like Brazil, basically now we have a president who's sort of proud of the, uh, the torture and, and, and murder of the past and says that's the way to go. I mean, I don't want to generalize or paint a very dark picture. Obviously, things change and things have changed. But I think it's worth noting that today's world is different from the world of 10 or 20 years ago in terms of how some mainstream actors around the world uh, talk about human rights. And so, you know, one wonders whether truth commissions could uh, sort of survive this moment of, uh, sort of assault on, um, let alone the practice of human rights, but even the sort of the... Um, the, the narrative of the, the discourse of human rights. So again, without generalizing too much, I really, I'm curious what everybody else thinks with respect to this sort of uh, shifting zeitgeist uh, as well. So at the end of the day, truth commissions are with us one way or another. Uh, as we're speaking, there are ongoing truth commissions in Gambia and Colombia. Uh, there's always talk of truth commissions in the United States, uh, I know in Northern Ireland, uh, in Turkey, you know, uh, the, the issue is brought up and then uh, somehow it doesn't happen, but, uh, but there's always this sort of talk that uh, a truth commission could help this, this country, uh, whatever country we're talking about, heal their um, um, divides over past wrongs. And so that's why I believe uh, it's, uh, it's really valuable to sort of study, practice uh, truth commissions as these, um, awkwardly situated uh, interventions in a society's relationship uh, to its past. Awkward in the sense that, again, uh, it's both uh, an intervention that invites ongoing uh, processes of coming to terms with the past, uh, yet is also uh, a temporary short-term intervention uh, with uh, a lot of expectations attached to it. So that's all on my hand and for now. Thank you very much, and I'll be happy to take questions later. Thank you very much, Honor, for this wonderful talk and for sharing your work with us. It was really great to hear more about it. And I will now hand it over to Kat Collins, who is Professor of Transitional Justice at Ulster University 
and director of the Transitional Justice Observatory at Universidad Diego Portales in Chile. I look forward to hearing your comments, Kat. Over to you. Thanks very much, Lisa, and thank you for all of your work. Hello, it's been many years since we last met here in Santiago, so it's been great to follow your work and have this chance today to share it more widely with the audience. I hope that the signal holds up. I hope you'll see. Kat, I'm afraid we can't really hear you, if it's not only me. Problem or is it a signal problem? <laughs> okay, now it's it was better. You maybe go to Brandon and we'll see if we can improve the connection. I think now it's already improved, but we can... Okay, continue. shall I continue or do you want to hand to Brandon? I think you can continue now. Yeah. froze on my yes end. then maybe we can continue with brandon brandon humber is a professor at international conflict research institute and john hume and thomas o'neill chair in peace at ulster university over to you brandon thank you and um you can hear me all right great great um, so, well, firstly, thanks very much for the paper. I really enjoyed the talk and uh, reading your paper as well. I, I very much like um, your very matter of fact approach at discussing issues of causality and impact um, uh, in what is, you know, become a very emotive discussion about do these mechanisms make a difference. So I really liked the very clear way you just laid it out and, and, and laid out the different uh, issues uh, and debates. So I really just wanted to thank you for that. Um, I also think, you know, of course, where you started is, is a critical question around this issue of impact and what do we mean uh, by, by impact. And so thank you for raising that question. Um, however, in listening to you and also reading your paper before, I was, you know, thinking about impact and I don't know if it's because it was uh, toward the end of the day, I was maybe getting a little bit philosophical about it rather than maybe uh, practical about it. Um, but I, I was sort of thinking a bit about maybe for this afternoon also introducing the idea of the politics of impact. You know, who is asking for these these measures to be made for truth commissions to be measured? What is it about? Um, here we have mechanisms which are essentially set up to challenge some of the most powerful people in society. Um, and so even suggesting the idea of impact, I think, has a politics uh, attached to it. Um, and I think not so much even of truth commissions, but the numerous meetings I've sat in with government where somebody says, you know, what we really need here is evidence-based policy. Um, and it's normally actually a set of words to say, this is not something we really want to do. It's not actually a real cry for saying, do we really need to get to grips with this and deeply understand it? Um, and so that idea, I think, of the politics of impact is important. Um, I think our other challenge, of course, in impact is that we don't really know what would happen if these mechanisms were not there. <laughs> 
and I was recently reading a report about uh, the London uh, Olympics and sort of the big debate about, you know, did it make an impact? And uh, I, I went and found it again this afternoon when I was thinking about your talk. And and it was a line in it which says, um, the Olympics, uh, uh, it is it's difficult to say what would have happened if the event had not taken place. Indeed, the background document to the report acknowledges that there is no counterfactual assumption related to the spending of public money on anything else. Um, and I think that that's what we're also struggling with when we're talking about truth. There's no, there's no, what if we didn't do this? Um, it's quite hard to know how we could even start to begin to, to measure these types of, of questions. Um, and to some degree, I suppose some of the things we're talking about are, are also partly immeasurable. Um, so uh, maybe because I come at this from a more psychological perspective, I'm thinking about issues like self-actualization or societal well-being. You know, we now have all across Europe this attempt to try and measure happiness, but does it really get to what it means for for us to have a sense of of social uh, social well-being? I think you really helpfully also outline, of course, that there are unintended consequences and some which are many are very positive, like mobilization, uh, for, for example. Um, and then how do we measure these processes over time is, is a massively important question and the multi-generational impact of, of the past. Um, and so in that context, I think we obviously have to be uh, looking at this in a much more modest way. Um, as I said, I was, uh, when thinking about the paper earlier today, again, uh, in a slightly uh, philosophical mood, perhaps, but I was thinking about Hannah Arendt's work on Eichmann in Jerusalem, and everybody knows, you know, it was a very controversial uh, piece of work, and there were those who criticized her, um, you know, for sympathizing with Eichmann amongst other types of objections, so we need to take that seriously. Um, but she, she has this great line uh, in, in, in which she says, uh, justice demands that the accused be prosecuted, defended, judged, and that all other questions of seemingly great import be left in abeyance. Um, and to some degree, when I think of how we think about uh, measuring the impact of truth commissions, we often struggle to think about these issues of great importance that are being left in abeyance, which is, you know, what is the nature of society? How uh, might society change over a period of time? I guess, you know, what you'd refer to as social norms, but I, I would think of it as a much more profound uh, social change, which is something which takes an incredibly long period of time. Um, and, you know, if we think of the recent case of uh, Dominic Onweng, um, again, you know, were the, the questions of great import, to use Hannah Arendt's words, were they actually discussed? Were the issues of, you know, how do you, how do you judge an abducted child who was socialized into, uh, into violence? That's the, that's the question of social import. Now, I know you're not talking about uh, justice processes, um, but I think those same type of questions uh, we could ask of truth commissions. You know, what are they about in terms of the big import of society, the importance of, of, of social uh, transformation? And, and that really steers me away from these, you know, large end studies, um, to some degree, maybe the ethnographic stuff, as you said, it does maybe get to how people feel. Um, but I, it makes me sometimes think when we're talking about impact, are we sort of talking about the wrong thing. Um, and in that sense, uh, probably, uh, you know, very similar to your quote of Adorno, um, you know, my position is one in which, um, you know, we are really talking about processes um, that are 
are much more about a sort of long-term process of cultivation of society. And in that sense, truth commissions, for me, are much more of like a staging post along the way rather than something which has the final say. And I, and I think you make that really clear in your... Um, uh, very clear in your in your work. Um, so, you know, goals like trying to reestablish the the rule of law, or you know, transform policy and transform institutions. There's just no way that one institution is going to affect all of that, as you rightly uh, rightly point out. Um, so, as you were sort of speaking, I was thinking, um, you know, you said, um, you know, TRC, truth commissions are really there to potentially write history in some ways they are also history <laughs> they're part of the process of creating a history and a society and a polity and a social context um, and i don't really know how you measure that but to me it fits much closer with you know as you said adorno's idea of sort of uh, working through um, or uh, as i've said there a sort of series of staging posts um, and staging posts which allow us to engage in a complex and difficult discussion that those in power and those who want to maybe abuse the politics of impact uh, are forced to have. Um, and in that sense, if we think of something like Hannah Arendt's work, um, you know, what was the most important thing? Yes, we can all pull out the phrase, the banality of evil, but it's not the most important thing that people had such a strong reaction to it and that there was this uh, discussion um, about, you know, can ordinary people, you know, do horrendous things? And for me, that's the questions of social importance. Um, and although in my own work, I've been very critical of truth commissions and their limitations, um, I still think there's a value that lies in, in that, setting up institutions that are there to try and get us to engage in these, uh, what you call narratives, these sort of complex, um, and, and difficult uh, types of processes. Um, we can get into maybe some of the specifics around the South African process and others. I've sort of steered a little bit away uh, from that, um, but rather I maybe shared an opinion that your work evoked for me, um, saying maybe we need to reorientate ourselves um, to toward those, those bigger questions, which you might say is just another normative set of assumptions about what a truth commission is, is about. Um, but, and rightly so, uh, but I think that that actually is where the game ultimately will be in relation uh, to truth commissions, as much as we might be fighting about its judicial outcomes and its social justice outcomes. I think it's a societal process. And if we look at these things as societal processes, maybe we would think about the outcomes differently. So thank you. Thank you, Brandon. I think we might try again to continue with Kat. Thanks, Nissan. Yes, yeah, so I'll try without video, and I'll just say a very, a very short couple of things rather than, than, than all of what I planned to say. But I think um, both Ono and Brandon have have, have suggested um, something that I also believe, which is that truth commissions more than other things that are used as part of transitional justice tend to suffer, I think, from magical thinking and a certain amount of inflated expectations and just ambiguous uh, and ill-defined expectations. 
And, and I think we need to be aware of what Pablo de Grefe has talked about as isomorphic mimicry, this idea that the same form transplanted to a different place will give the same results and that those results will be good results. Um, and as Honor, as you quite rightly said, and, and, and wrote, you know, we need to assess, we cannot simply assume, both in terms of whether a truth commission is the way to go and in terms of how to design a truth commission that does the things um, that we need or that we want. And I think I have increasing sympathy with what's often criticized um, as the Northern Ireland piecemeal approach um, of doing truth telling or doing anything, not through this single one-off ad hoc um, event, but through a series of um, interventions. Now the quality and, and designedness of those interventions we could dispute for Northern Ireland. But the point is it's not necessarily a bad thing. So if we take Pablo's criticism seriously, the question to ask is not, has there been a truth commission, but whether what has been done and will be done on a continual basis about truth revelation or about justice or about anything else, add up to all of the things that the right to truth entails. And I think that's the, the better question. And since it's the, the, the UN day of the right to truth. So the right to truth does not equal a truth commission and a truth commission by itself will not deliver on the right to truth. And a badly designed truth commission, you know, maybe a distraction from, from some other things that we need to be thinking about or doing. And since today is named for um, the anniversary of, of the assassination of Archbishop Romero and El Saint Romero. Uh, I want to finish just with an example from El Salvador. The El Salvador Truth Commission, which I mentioned, was extremely courageous at a time and in a context where it was genu genuinely dangerous to do anything at all. And I think post-conflict truth commissions are much more complex in that sense sometimes than post-authoritarian ones. Its executive secretary was a woman, an Argentine woman, a human rights defender who many of you know, Patricia Valdez, who we brought to the Institute previously. It also had all of the limitations of its time. The commissioners per se were three men, um, all from outside the country. Um, no specific attention was given to sexual or gender-based violence, et cetera, et cetera. We could make many criticisms from, from today's perspective, but its main problem is not what it did, but what happened or rather what didn't happen next. So here was a truth commission with supposedly binding recommendations that just were never acted upon. And yet many people think from outside and many people writing about Salvador seem to assume that those things did happen. Um, and today, um, a search commission, a commission to search for the disappeared has been set up very much along the truth commission lines and model on a much smaller scale. And I'm, I'm involved with that commission. And the fate of both, I think, has been roughly similar. The state sets this up largely to garner outside approbation or to um, pacify internal and external demand, and then quietly sets about pulling all of its teeth, making its life impossible, denying it access to perpetrators, denying it access to state information, particularly to armed forces information, then prepares itself to throw things at the report if the report contains things that are unduly critical. So the Salvadoran Truth Commission was one of few truth commissions that has been, uh, has taken it upon itself rather than being allowed to name her perpetrators. There were very good reasons why it did so. As the commission itself said, if we don't, no one ever will. But it, that, of course, was also one of the things that set the establishment's face um, against the, the, the report and its subsequent recommendations. So the commissions that are historically boldest tend to get most pushback. 
from elites, from the government, from the Supreme Court, from the, from the military, from, from anyone and everyone in El Salvador. Paraguay is another example. Paraguay's commission denounced the appropriation of land. It denounced the role of Brazil and the US in propping up the regime. And, and, and its very strength became its weakness in terms of it being undermined. So I think that's just a final consideration that, that maybe would be salutary for Greg or Grandin and others, and for the transformative justice enthusiasts who I see at the moment as envisioning truth commissions as something they can kind of lay their hands on, if you like, as a way to do the kind of bold diagnosis of socioeconomic, gender and social justice ills of a whole host society. I think we need to, you know, um, curb the enthusiasm, if, to, if I can borrow that phrase from Mendeloff that Ona you also mentioned, um, because particularly where those self-same issues have been at the heart of what the conflict is about, it is neither helpful nor realistic, I think, to ask or expect truth commissions to do something that will be seen as taking sides in the conflict. And as I speak, I'm thinking very hard about Colombia and about uh, the CEV and what the CEV will and will not be able to do in the context of a conflict that has not even ended for any meaningful purpose. So I think lots to think about there, Honor. Thank you so much for that. And thank you also, Brandon, um, as ever, for those very considered um, um, additional dimensions. So thanks to both of you for a fascinating discussion. And I hope that there's time for some comments and, and conversation with the public too. Thank you very much, Kat. So now I will open the floor for the questions and comments. We already have one comment slash question, I guess, and a question. I Maybe I can start with reading um, the comment because I don't think the attendees can see it and then we can combine it with Nada's question. So the comment by Ronald is picking up on Adorno's point about ongoing process and working through the past. One way to measure a truth commission's contribution and impact is its contribution to engagement with the meaning of the past, its contribution to public and private narratives. So my question is whether a truth commission's contribution to public narrative and engagement is a way to measure a truth commission's positive impact. If true, then the question is how to measure. Perhaps media hits stories, polls, political discourse. And I think you can all see Nada's question. It's about the truth and dignity commission in Tunisia. So maybe you can first say a couple of words about this first, second, and then we can continue. Yeah, of course. Um, so starting with the uh, truth commission in, uh, in, in Tunisia, um, it's recently uh, finished its work. So there's, there's, uh, Definitely a lot more I need to read on, uh, but um, what I know is that it was uh, the, the Tunisian Truth Commission was perhaps similar to the Chilean or the Peruvian one in the sense that it forwarded, it forwarded information about perpetrators to the prosecutor's office. And so uh, whether or not retributive justice is going to continue now is, is a question of uh, prosecutorial discretion more than anything. Uh, and I know some perpetrators came forward as well, not a huge number, but a few, but, uh, but I don't know in greater detail. So like if anybody knows more about the sort of the perpetrator engagement in the, in the Tunisian commission, I'd be also very happy to learn more. Uh, and then going to, uh, going into Ron's question, uh, by the way, thanks for coming Ron. Uh, we, uh, we work literally two buildings away, but uh, these are the only platforms we get to see each other these days. Um, so, 
In terms of a truth commission sort of narrative um, shaping public discourse, there is definitely some degree of disappointment with, with the extent to which truth commissions actually managed to uh, open up to the public. Uh, I know that even a truth commission that was as controversial uh, as, the, as the Peruvian one, and controversial in a good sense, I would say, um, I think about half the public actually knew about the commission's uh, activities in, in the city of Lima. And so there is definitely a bit of an outreach problem. Um, and I don't know, I mean, that could definitely limit the, the, sort of the, the, the extent to which uh, public discourse is shaped uh, through, um, through truth commissions. Uh, with that said, of course, you know, the Argentine Truth Commission was, you know, it's, its final report was a bestseller. And so, you know, there, there are some, some, some of this sort of contending uh, um, stories about truth commissions as well. Lately, truth commissions have done a lot to provide a bride's versions of their final report, child-friendly versions of their final report, a cartoon format of their final report and things like that to incorporate more uh, to the... Um, uh, sort of into the uh, to the curriculum, uh, so hopefully that is uh, that is going to help with uh, with the commission's outreach uh, on the whole. Um, but yeah, and I think that ties nicely also with things that uh, Brandon and Kath brought up. Um, it, in at their inception, truth commissions, I think, were seen by many international lawyers as second best uh, justice, or not even justice, just some sort of second best mechanism. Uh, when perpetrators cannot be prosecuted. Uh, perhaps one justification for having a truth commission, not as second best, but as the best, most appropriate mechanism uh, in a transitioning society is that um, trials have their own limitations. And one of their biggest limitations, going back to Eichmann trial, is that um, trials by, 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 by their nature, um, may or may not be exemplary. So their job is really to establish uh, criminal guilt in one or a few cases. And so their job is not to necessarily narrate history. And uh, Arendt was, of course, also controversial because she was critical of the Israeli prime minister for trying to build out of the Eichmann trial some sort of national narrative. And so her point was that, no, a trial is just a trial. You can't really... Uh, sort of make it into a much bigger deal than it is, or you can't really turn it into an exemplary event. Whereas I think in truth commissions, it's a lot easier to um, narrate the past and so come up with sort of generalities, patterns, uh, rather than just, you know, establish guilt in, in, a, in a very sort of limited setting. So that could also be a contribution of truth commissions in that way. Um, yeah, I mean, I would like to take more questions now. And, um, um, Brandon and Kat, would you like to say a few words as well, maybe on the measuring the contribution question? I can comment briefly on Ron's question. Uh, it's also great to at least see you there on the text, Ron, um, and nice to, to hear from you. Um, I mean, there's lots that, that, that could be said, um, but I think your question about, you know, would you measure this through media hits and stories and polls, um, uh, to be true to what I had just said, I, I probably would have to answer that by saying, actually, I would probably be less interested. I mean, I would be interested, but I don't think we should measure it by things like a change in attitudes 
or that people are now thinking in the right way. I think once we start going down that sort of route, uh, we're into, uh, I don't know what you'd call it, but it, but it's a, it's, it's a sort of normative idea that we sort of know what it is that people need to be thinking and we need to be pushing them into that way. And it's a sort of human rights evangelism uh, type approach. So I, I wouldn't necessarily be thinking of those tools to try and figure out is everybody moving in the right direction. Um, I would rather be interested in them in terms of volume. So, uh, you know, if people are responding, if there is a public discussion, if it is unfolding, uh, then for me, that is more of a success than saying, oh, everyone's now thinking the right thing. They're having good positive views of their, uh, of their neighbor. Um, but to get to that point, I do think you do need to have these sort of, uh, I call them staging posts, but these sort of bold markers. Um, and so for me, a truth commission, or a reparations program, or a public memorial, these are markers which demonstrate intent. Um, and large efforts like that, when bought into by large groups of people, have the potential to transform society. And we always think of transformation as a sort of positive thing that could be negative or positive, but ultimately you're trusting the process, that if you are putting these bold markers in place, that you're showing the intent, uh, and you take a longer view of history, that you have a potential uh, for those outcomes to, to be different. Um, so that's how I might look at it. I don't know if that's a little bit off, off the topic, but I, I wouldn't look at it in a narrow sense of trying to measure, you know, do Catholics and Protestants now have better views of each other if we had a truth commission? Of course, that's interesting, but that, that's not why we, would, we, should set, we shouldn't set it up with those type of very narrow goals. Thank you, Brandon. I will move to the next three questions and I will read them as well and then we can do another one. In Nicaragua, which has been living through a deep sociopolitical and human rights crisis since 2018, there has been a growing demand by civil society and especially victims for these types of instruments, despite the fact that there are no signs from the government and state authorities to engage in a meaningful dialogue with them or cooperate with international human rights instruments. Have there been any instances where these initiatives have succeeded in having a tangible impact in the short or long term? And the other question is, it is to honor, in your research, how forthcoming have you found truth commissions to be about their limitations? Were the commission members themselves even aware of these limitations? How did clarity around the commission's power and scope, essentially expectation management, affect how its work was received by the public and especially by victims? And I'll read another one. I am interested in the individual benefits for victims of trauma testifying. This has to be viewed in a modest way as mostly a single analysis session. Has there been any learning best practice in previous truth commissions regarding victims and survivors and their well-being benefit of public testimony? I think, yes, this is all for now. So Honor, maybe you can start. Sure, yeah, and I'll go in reverse order. Uh, I think the best practice in terms of uh, maybe you know engagement with victims is uh, you know going back to the question of expectation management to do just that. Um, this was reported in Sierra Leone, for example. Um, there was this um, expectation that the Truth Commission there would uh, deliver reparations. Now, Truth Commissions don't have that much budget, so they don't really. Um, implement reparations. They, uh, they can only recommend it and they can uh, draw a list of victims. 
but I think more often than not, governments keep that sort of line intentionally blurred so that uh, a lot of the blame when the reparations program disappoints ends up going to the Truth Commission uh, wrongfully. And so I think Truth Commission should definitely do uh, a much better job of sort of explaining that they are not exactly government. Uh, they might be the closest thing that most victims get to see to a government, but actually they are not. Uh, sort of they cannot implement policy and so that is definitely one another um, best practice I think especially for victims of sexual violence but generally for victims uh, is 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 that um, truth commissions should be equipped with uh, counseling resources uh, available to to victims but also the commissioners themselves I think from everything that I uh, I have read over the years this is grueling work i mean for victims obviously there is the risk of re-traumatization uh in in narrating uh, experiences uh, and then uh to a lesser extent but still quite importantly for truth commission workers they need to have access to counseling resources and um i mean this hasn't really not happened uh and there might be some variation that i'm not aware of but generally Truth commissions are under-equipped when it comes to um, mental health resources or resources in helping people sort of uh, cope with uh, with traumatic uh, experiences as well as testimonies. I think that should that should definitely be much improved uh, in future um, truth commissions. Uh, I mean, sadly, a lot of it all again keeps coming down to pol the, the politics of truth commissions. There's got to be enough budgeting. There's got to be uh, enough funding, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, but that's what it is. In terms of truth commissions being uh, self-aware of their limitations or not, not very publicly. But for example, the Peruvian Truth Commission was. Well, I mean, it was sort of a social democratic truth commission when it came to political orientation, but there wasn't a single uh, indigenous member that later uh, raised eyebrows in a country where three fourths of the victims were um, uh, from one indigenous group. And so I have sort of in the private heard some self-criticism, but I don't know, I'm not aware of any sort of public uh, criticism or self-criticism around that. Um, and I think that is probably the number one thing that truth commissions should be a little bit more sort of uh, forthcoming about their own uh, positionality, uh, their own members sort of position society. Um, there is definitely a lot of prestige coming with through being a member of a truth commission, also a lot of hatred they receive eventually. Uh, but sort of talking about the prestige part, I think, yeah, the members should at least sort of be aware that uh, typically they come from sort of upper middle class positions. Uh, a few of them uh, actually come from maybe sort of more modest backgrounds, but I think there's a bit of a class bias there as well that, you know, I don't know if truth commissions have always been forthcoming about. Finally, about civil society participation, um, or rather civil society truth commissions. Um, I think they have carried the conversation forward in countries like Uruguay or Brazil. Uh, there were civil society truth-finding efforts long before uh, um, the sort of the government-mandated ones, and so I think they made those possible in the first place. In the United States, there is definitely always um, uh, some sort of civil society effort. There are these unofficial truth commissions. Uh, 
or semi-official local level truth commissions in North Carolina, in the state of Maine. I know right now in Pennsylvania, in, in Philadelphia, there is, there is one that's sort of uh, ongoing about, uh, about um, police murders of African-Americans. And so these are all civil society efforts. Uh, the central government, the federal government hasn't really uh, mandated any of them in the United States. They carry the conversation forward. So that's, I think, uh, an important function to play but in terms of providing concrete benefits obviously they are uh, very very uh, limited thank you Onur. we have a couple of more minutes left so maybe if kat and brandon would like to comment on these last questions as well can i comment on, on that that question about <laughs> grassroots um, um and nicaragua so Ono, you, 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 you answered with reference to civil society and truth commissions. I think grassroots, just a state and elite are not always one and the same. Civil society involvement in truth commissions and grassroots involvement in truth commissions are also two different things. You know, and there's all of that class stratification within civil society in terms of who is doing what and at what level. Um, so I think you know, positionality is as important for, 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 for non-state actors as for state actors. Um, and specifically in regards to Nicaragua, the, the Inter-American Commission for Human Rights has been very involved in that situation. The commissioner with responsibility for Nicaragua also happens to be the commissioner with responsibility for transitional justice issues. And she's a Chilean national. So that's a conversation that, that I've, I've not, not formally been involved in, but certainly have followed. And I think the question to ask of grassroots truth initiatives Firstly, in general, and secondly, and specifically in reference to Nicaragua at the moment, is what do you think will happen? What is it that you envisage will, 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 will change as a result of the, the initiative you are putting um, together or putting forward? If you think that it will stop an increasingly authoritarian government becoming more authoritarian, then that, I think, would be the triumph of hope over experience. Nothing suggests that a truth commission format can do that. Do you think that your position as a grassroots community, uh, as a victim, a survivor, a relative, a human rights defender will be improved, will be protected, will be defended or might be exposed, you know, might you be placed in danger by um, setting up, taking part in a forum of that sort where there is no prospect that regime change is imminent or will follow? And that's also a question we've had to ask for, with El Salvador, with the search commission. Um, is there protection for informants in what is, again, an increasingly authoritarian um, 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 political environment? How do you protect the information, the testimony, the informants? Um, um, if this commission is, is, because the commission is semi-state, you know, its, it's, it's findings and its archives are public property. And if that state becomes increasingly authoritarian and that government becomes increasingly authoritarian, as it is and happening in El Salvador at the moment, what is gonna to happen to that? So there's an ethics of responsibility question, you know, the overbearing question that Pepe Salaket always raised and I've always been, you know, I always used to argue with him about, but that question does arise, I think, um, in regard to grassroots um, truth initiatives, particularly in societies where there is a risk of, of regression or whether there is still, where there is still, um, you know, very much present the authoritarian dynamic. And I think that's a very important question for promoters of such things uh, and particularly for outside um, international organizations, both official and, 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 and civil society in eliciting testimony and in promoting and supporting that kind of initiative. So there, you know, there are serious kind of 
um, questions, hard questions to ask ourselves about grassroots efforts. Um, do they exist and have they existed elsewhere and have they had a positive impact? Yeah, you know, um, Ona's mentioned some of them, they've, they've happened in and around the north of Ireland too. Um, a whole series of state level commissions um, spontaneously happened to feed into the State Truth Commission in Brazil. And, and there's been lots of, of ongoing kind of um, work and, and activity around those much more than around the State Commission. But also um, they've also happened, you know, they've, they've happened with, with and without particular pretensions for impact on the state. So the North of Ireland example, Greensboro and others, there's local impact for all of those things. And local impact is real impact. Um, it's it's dignifying, you know, it, it, it does things at a local level. And I think that we increasingly are talking in transitional justice about that local level impact. And therefore, you know, there's, there are also positive things to be said about those commissions that don't have that same pretension. Final example, I'm sorry, I know it's been a bit rambly, but Iran, um, the diaspora, Iranian diaspora and refugees carried out um, their um, equivalent of a truth commission some years ago on a kind of Russell tribunal um, format. Um, and that again was vastly important, but it was important in a different way and for different things. You know, it had, did it have international relations impact? Did it have any impact on the regime in Iran? Of course it didn't. Um, did it maybe slightly unrealistically expect or hope to have that? I think some people maybe had those expectations, but it was important in a different way for the diaspora and for international solidarity and for the refugee community and for a whole host of other things. So I think that what is envisaged for a commission type or a truth telling, let's talk, talk a truth telling um, event, if you like, of a grassroots nature is different. And truth commissions might also become, might almost become a misnomer for something. We need a name that differentiates that kind of, of event and, 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 uh, and impact from what we rightly expect of and from a state. So these kinds of grassroots um, initiative that happen in and around or outside of an authoritarian regime because they can't happen in country, um, they are not the state's fulfillment of the right to truth. And that's something that you know um, we should be always expecting and demanding of that state. And in that sense, in that particular definitional conceptual sense, they're not truth commissions. Are they things that can have um, a, a huge amount of other kinds of benefit and impact? You know, if all of the 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 the, the, the care and safety um, questions are are, are, are are taken seriously and dealt with ethically, then yes, I've certainly seen that too. Thank you, Kat. Uh, we are almost starting to run over our time, but Brandon, would you like to add a couple of words, maybe? I'll try and be be brief uh, on the two questions. Uh, you know, in terms of the issue of, of trauma, you know, this is my field. I could talk from now into eternity about uh, that. Um, so I, I maybe won't. Uh, but other than say, you know, the idea that victims should participate in truth commissions has become much stronger in policy and in rhetoric. Um, it's not necessarily followed by actual practice. Um, so outside of formal uh, mental health uh, support that Honor talked about, um, improving participation, consultation, proper engagement, these all have very positive mental health, uh, mental health out, uh, outcomes, and they don't cost a lot of money. It's about getting the process right. And in the same way, uh, the administrative treatment of people, I saw that in the South African Truth Commission process, you know, someone phoning up and saying, what's happening with my case, and nobody can find the file. Um, when you feel you've been persecuted by the state before, 
that becomes a persecutory act. It might look quite minor, but it's actually experienced as people don't really care about me. And so you have to get some of those basics right on top of some of those other external uh, supports and keying into civil society. I really like the question then about the uh, truth commissioners and are they aware? Again, I can only mainly talk from my South African experience where I knew many of them personally and worked very closely with individuals. And, you know, yes, they were aware. Uh, of course they were aware. You don't be in the middle of a political storm and you're not aware of what's going on around you. Uh, whether that means people can make the right decisions and step back and understand what's going on is a completely different uh, process. So there were many occasions where I think people would say things publicly that they didn't believe personally. Um, so for example, there would be a massive amount of pressure of a certain political party or group saying, you know, this isn't working. Uh, so the response from the commission would have to be to stand up and say, of course it's working and sort of oversell it um, rather than, than, than be honest. Um, you know, for some victims are getting healed and some aren't. That's not a very attractive public message when you're in the middle of uh, a, political, a political process. The other challenge with that is that the truth commissioners themselves also, uh, to use uh, honor's phrase, I think it was normative assumptions, or they, you know, they have their own set of assumptions about how change happens. Um, and say in the South African case, uh, you can see it in, in Alex Borain's book and others. I mean, the untold story on some levels is that the commissioners were fighting with each other all the time um, because they had different conceptualizations of what it was that they thought they were about. Um, and my colleague in South Africa, Hugo van der Merwe, sums this up beautifully. He says, there were those who thought of thought the commission was about seeing the light and those who thought it was about feeling the heat. And so those from Archbishop Tutu's background and others felt that people would change if they heard the stories and they saw the pain and that's how the change would happen. And then you had the human rights lawyers and the others who felt only if people felt the heat only if they were being subpoenaed and the commission was using uh, search, uh, uh, search and subpoena powers and people really felt that pressure would society start to change. Um, and so the whole way through, they were having this uh, type of debate, which for example, you know, it came up, should they raid the military headquarters? And it really fell down on those lines. You know, some people who felt doing that would sort of be against spirit and the principle of what this sort of restorative process was about. And others who are saying, you'll never get to the truth if you don't do it. So, you know, I don't think we should think of commissioners and people involved as a, as a monolith. Actually, it's a contested space, just as the outside of the commission is a contested space. Thanks very much, Brandon. Um, I think we will finish it here and I will have to end this webinar, although we would love this discussion to continue and Onur just typed in his email address so you can contact him for further discussions. And thanks very much everyone for joining us today and asking these wonderful questions. Thank you very much Onur again for sharing your work and thank you Brandon and Kat. Bye everyone, have a nice rest of your days. Thank you for all. Thanks, Ara. Yeah. That was great. Really fantastic. Thanks. Thanks.